You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. So today is, I think, part two in our Lent series on matters of, of justice. Um, we're taking our cues uh, this Lent season from Isaiah 58, which uh, is all about the Lord's kind of fast. And I'm just going to read you a little bit of that here. Isaiah 58, verses 6 through 8, says this. Is this, is this not the fast that I have chosen, says the Lord, to loosen the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked, to cover them, to not hide yourself from your own kin? Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up quickly." And so for us, uh, this Lent season, we're focusing on what it means to fast from injustice, fast from our silence, our apathy regarding matters of, of justice, social justice, political justice, these pragmatic conversations that we need to have. And so today we're having one of these pragmatic conversations, and we've invited Andre Henry. Uh, come on down, yeah, uh, here this morning. Would you join me in welcoming Andre? And I want to make sure that I introduce you properly, so I'm going to pull up my notes here. Um, Andre is a local writer, speaker, musician, former pastor, with a deep passion for racial justice. He has lectured at universities, worked with community organizers and activists, and organized protests and actions himself. You are a graduate of Fuller, much like myself and Max and Bob. Half the church, it seems like, is <laughs> that's not true, not half the church. But a lot of us, I guess, a few of us are from Fuller. And you have a, an, you received a master's uh, of, of, what do they call it, MAT, but Master of Arts in Theology. And what was your area of focus? Biblical languages. Biblical languages. I didn't know that. So that means Greek and Hebrew, obviously. Wow. Are you going to speak in Greek and Hebrew this morning? I am not. Okay, good. I don't really want you to. I just, it's very impressive. Okay. So the structure of our time together will be that of an interview and a dialogue. All right. My hope is that uh, this will be more engaging and give all of you an opportunity uh, to get involved as well. In that respect, I'll be asking throughout our conversation if there's any, any questions or comments from, uh, from the audience. Uh, and then there'll be an actual like, proper time of Q&A at the end like we, like we have every week. So with that being said, welcome Andre. Uh, let's, let's begin by um, hearing you give us a little, little bit about your story and how you got into this, we talked earlier, this line of work that we call quote unquote activism. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I always like to first uh, push back on the title of activist because I feel like it's, a, it, it, it's like an elite category and it creates this space that a lot of people count themselves out of, right? And so I've had people say to me, well, what about us non-activist types? And I'm like, no, no, see, you don't understand. When I was nine and someone asked me, what do I want to be when I grow up? I said, I want to be a fireman, <laughs> not an activist, right? It's not, it wasn't a career path. You, some of us stumble into fighting for justice because of our social location, the place that we sit in the social, stratif social stratification. And it's like an existential necessity, right? Um, in fighting for justice, you're fighting for your own life and fighting for the lives of others, and then you see how oppression is connected to others, and you end up fighting for them as well. Um, but not because you are attaining to this title or status of activist, but because you realize once you are awakened in that way that there's no other way to live in the world. And that is my experience, that on July 25th, uh, 2016, I sat down over a plate of leftovers and forced myself to eat. Um, I hadn't had much of an appetite that month because at the beginning of that month during Independence Week, I watched a man bleed to death on Facebook Live in front of his girlfriend and his four-year-old daughter. 
Philando Castile, who was pulled over because the officer said that his wide set nose fit the description of a robbery suspect. Now, it's no secret that many black people have wide noses. So how could a description that could fit anyone from my younger brother to Jay-Z signify that this particular black man was the suspect that they were looking for? Beyond that, how did you see his wide set nose while he was driving past you at 30 miles an hour, 40 miles an hour? So it was immediately apparent that what had happened was Philando Castile was racially profiled. When the officer asked him about his alleged broken taillight, and Philando Castile told him that he had a licensed concealed carry in the car, but was reaching for his wallet, for his license and registration, as he was supposed to do, as he was instructed to do. And the officer unloaded four bullets into his chest in front of his family. I recognized that kind of thing happens more often to black people. Statistics say five times more often to black people than it does to their white counterparts. And it wasn't like it was the first time that I'd ever seen racial violence or understood the, how deadly you know, racial stereotypes, stigmas can be. But it was that moment that I just, it was a watershed moment. I said, you know what, I, I have to do something. I didn't know what I was gonna do or what I could do, but I knew that I had to do something and I knew that it had to involve my body. So July 25th, I sit down over this plate of leftovers and next thing you know, I'm, I always feel weird talking about this because it's a, I consider myself a sane, intelligent person. But I ended up having like this daydream. And in that daydream, I was just as lucid and as aware and as cognizant as I am right now, sitting in front of you, talking to all of you. And I saw myself walking in Old Town, Pasadena, by this park, and from the park I could hear a street preacher, someone in, from inside the park speaking. And I remember thinking in this daydream, are Christians still doing that? <laughs> going down the street and yelling at people <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the name of Jesus. You know, I cannot stand street preachers, and, but I'm always curious about them. I don't like them, but they are entertaining. And so in the daydream, as is consistent with my curiosity about street preachers, I go into the park to see who it is and what they're talking about. And when I get there, I look up and I, the street preacher was me. I was standing next to a boulder that had been painted white and on it was written, all of these racial injustices that affect black people like mass incarceration and police brutality and white supremacy and white fragility and Eurocentrism and the names of the victims of police violence. And I was standing in the park and I was preaching. I was, re I was reciting whole passages from Isaiah and Revelation about God's renewed world and this world that would not have racial injustice and racial violence and all that kind of stuff. And the next thing you know, I'm back to my senses sitting over that plate of leftovers. And I began to weep because I felt like the vision was an instruction and I didn't want to do it. I'm a sane, intelligent person. I said to who, I, I, I wasn't sure that I believed in God anymore and we could talk more about, well, I'm sure, I know some of our questions will lead us there, but at the time I wasn't sure that I believed in God anymore. So I don't know who I was arguing with, but I was arguing with somebody telling them, I am too smart and too sane to do this. But I felt as though I wasn't sure if I would, if I would feel uh, later on, if I would regret refusing to do it. and so. I did. I, I got a boulder, I got a wagon, I painted that boulder white, I wrote all of the things that I saw in that vision on it, and I pulled it with me for months around Los Angeles. And that was how I got into what I'm doing now, which is 
talking about racial injustice, teaching about racial injustice, and not just the injustice, but also about social change, about what people, ordinary people can do together to confront injustice in society. Wow. All right. Thank you. Um, let's, let's dive into what's really fresh in all of our minds this week. Um, the shooter in the recent uh, New Zealand massacre credited President Trump for partially inspiring his attack uh, and for being, quote, his words, a symbol of renewed white identity and common purpose. Could you speak to the rise of white supremacy during the Trump administration? And why Trump seems to be an inspiration for white nationalism and latent forms of bigotry among many today? How's that for a question? I mean, I can't speak to it in an exhaustive way, right? Like there are, there are political factors and cultural factors and, and thinking about even the history of evangelicalism and how that factors in. And those are not questions that I think that I could speak to as an expert, you know. Um, but, I, but what stands out to me is listening to what these white supremacists say about themselves, about their own motives, you know. And so the shooter in New Zealand said, um, he expressed in his manifesto this anxiety about the survival of white people yeah. and white culture. Um, and he didn't say it in these words, but people who are concerned about things are usually concerned with the survival of white hegemony, of the white power structure, of white dominance, of white power, right? And preserving that power. And it's the same thing that Dylan Roof, who shot, uh, who shot the nine parishioners at Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in South, Carolina, in South Carolina in 2015, said as well. It's the same thing that Jared Taylor says when um, he's interviewed in that YouTube video, Dinner with a White Nationalist, and he says it probably clearest than anything when, when he's asked, you are an intellectual or you fancy yourself an intellectual and yet you support Donald Trump, why is that? And he said, if Donald Trump's policies are implemented, then they will stay the dispossession of whites. And so there, Richard Spencer says the same thing in the, the Netflix um, documentary called Meeting the Enemy, White Right Meeting the Enemy where he talks about, he says, I, I think white privilege should be deepened, it should be expanded, because these people are afraid of losing um, the place of privilege and dominance that they have had for centuries. And that seems to be fueling their activity. Now, they, now they're, these are the vanguard of white supremacy, right? So they can express it in that way and they can be explicit about it and they have no bones about saying it plainly that way. But I've written about, I've written about this before that there is a spectrum of white supremacy, right? And they, they are somewhere near the, the top of that hierarchy. You know, they're not, not all of them are necessarily behind the violence, although some of them are. You know, Charlottesville 2017, Richard Spencer was there. You know, one of the leaders of, of the violence that happened that, that summer. But at the bottom of that hierarchy are all the people who are doing nothing to oppose it. And those are the people that, are, that, that the surveys are talking about when they say in every, survey that, in every survey that has existed of those who voted for Donald Trump, which are mostly white people, no matter what, no matter what religious tradition they're from or whatever Christian tradition they're from, white people in America overwhelmingly voted for Donald Trump, that they are also concerned about losing power. And I think that this is something, I can't speak from the existential place of a white person, but I can say that there seems to be this insidious allegiance and complicity to white power, white supremacy, white privilege that many white Americans have, that they're not necessarily aware of, like it's not at the forefront of their mind. It's unconscious. Right. But then when, when pressed, <laughs> it comes out, right? And so I think that that is something that we, have to, that we have to be honest about. 
is that this is, this is the moment where Jane Elliott asks an audience on a talk show and says, you know, the same people who would, who would say that they're colorblind, the same people who would say that they love everyone, they love all of humanity, they only see souls, whatever, whatever, whatever. She asked them, how many of you would want to be treated like black folks though? No one raises their hand. And she says, well, that means you know exactly, no, you know exactly what's going on. Yeah, I, I think so much of what you're describing is unconscious and latent, and a lot of folks don't even know they're participating in white supremacy consciously. Yeah. I think unconsciously, if they really looked at their actions and their behaviors and their attitudes, they would say, I'm, I'm doing this because I'm afraid of black and brown folk getting too much power, getting, taking away my wealth. Yeah. Right? Be, me being dispossessed in some capacity, yeah. Anybody... Um, want to respond to that or add anything to that or have a question about that? Okay, okay. <laughs> Moving right along, yeah. Um, so perhaps this, this question is a good dovetail into the last one. What are the biggest obstacles that you see to racial justice or racial reconciliation? Not, not so much in the church, we'll get to that, but more in American society as a whole. I want to begin there. What are the biggest obstacles that you see, maybe the practicalities of it, to racial justice in, in the United States today specifically, Brent? Okay, there's, <laughs> I want to see if I could condense that. I mean, one, one huge thing is that there's a bunch of racial ignorance. People do not think well about race in America. A lot of white people don't know what it means to be white. They don't think about what it means to be a white person. Um, and that, that is, that's partly by design, right? Like racial, racialization is what happens to non-white people. I think one of the clearest examples is like in the 1960s, in the context of music, right? You have music and then you have race music. Oh, really? Yeah. It was called race it was, music. That's how people referred to Motown. And it was, it was called race music because white people don't consider themselves to be racialized, right? So we are the ones who have race, which is also partly why white people are always thinking, why is this about race? Why are you bringing race into it, right? Because they don't, that's not a part of the way that um, things have been framed for white people. I'm, I'm not ethnic, you're ethnic. Exactly, yeah. right? And that's, that's partly by design, right? That white people also don't consider, you know, their whiteness to have ethnicity, right? Because as a construct, whiteness doesn't really have an ethnicity, is that you graduate into whiteness, which is also graduating into humanity, you know, which is how it's been constructed since the Enlightenment, that, the way that people started talking about humanity in the Enlightenment was that human meant white, abled, straight, Christian, wealthy. Yeah. Male goes in. Male, yeah, yeah. yes, yes. Um, and then everyone that is not in that category is subhuman, coming down that spectrum, until you get to black, which is non-human, right? And people don't have this understanding in general. So people want to talk across racial lines as though we are the same, as though we're having similar experiences, right? And not realizing that, not realizing what has actually been done in the name of race. We don't think well about it. And that hinders conversations. When I talk about racism, um, somebody, Somebody, most people think race, racism is about personal emotional hatred, right? I'm talking about a system of advantages that are based on the construct of race. They're talking about meanness. Fe feeling, <laughs> right, feeling exactly, racist. Right, so that's a huge, that's a huge hindrance yeah. to any type of racial justice because if we're gonna fight a problem, we have to agree on what the problem is and what the nature of the problem is. If we're gonna treat a sickness, we have to understand what that sickness actually is, how it works, what it is made of. Otherwise, we misdiagnose it and then we mistreat it, right? So that's, that's a huge one. And that seems to be like, in every conversation, that's like square one, is what are we even talking about when we talk about racism? Uh, the other thing, I think, is that white Americans are generally unwilling to put in the work to do what is necessary 
to create an anti-racist society. Now, some, some, there's a spectrum of that, right? There are some who are, um, who are adamantly opposed. The leading opposers, that's the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah, yeah. That's the shooter in New Zealand. Right. That's Dylan Roof. And every person knows that you're not supposed to be that person. <laughs> Everyone knows that much. No, nobody really likes that guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everyone knows, yeah, yeah. like, don't turn your bed sheets into ropes. <laughs> right? Yeah, sort of a no, sort of a no-brainer. We know that we know that level of racism. Right. But but a lot of people are opposed to racism in their speech, in their Facebook posts, their tweets. But if racism is about power, then you have to contend with racism in the realm of power, in the terrain of power. Until white people are willing to confront racism in the terrain of power, we're going to keep on having the same conversations that we've been having about racism for centuries, and I'm not even exaggerating, we are having the exact same conversations about racism that our ancestors have been having. If you go back in history and look at the things that W.E.B. Du Bois was saying to white America, the things that Frederick Douglass was saying, the things that Sojourner Truth were saying, and Dr. King and Malcolm X were saying, we're having the exact same conversations. And we'll keep tweeting, and we'll keep, we'll keep posting, and we'll keep talking about it, but we'll make no progress Right? And this is something that Dr. King lamented by the end of his life. In 1967, when Dr. King was trying to expand the civil rights movement into the northern cities, he began to lament that white America did not seem interested in actually waging struggle right. against racist structures. I could keep going, but I think those are the two, <laughs> the two big ones. Well, and you mentioned something really profound that I think ties into this community's experience. Um, in a broader sense, you talked about how one of the fundamental problems here is that people don't want to put in the work. Yeah. They don't want to put in the work, meaning they don't want to really wrestle uh, and 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 reflect, um, deconstruct, um, to to really try to understand the power structures involved, or even the attitudes and the unconscious ways that they are participating in white supremacy. And for me, as the, um, the leader of what we call radical theology community here at Central, which is all about um, kind of deconstructing what we believe and asking the hard questions about what we believe, this is a part of that. Um, the reason why <laughs> churches like Central are small is because people don't want to put in the work of really asking the hard questions about what they believe and, and really questioning the faith they were handed. And not just the faith, but the underlying political and um, you know, social messages that they were inherited to from, frankly, evangelicalism. Um, it's, it's hard to do that work. It's scary. There's loss involved. There's, there's a kind of crucifixion, to use the gospel, that, it, that is experienced when you undergo that level of deconstruction. Um, you lose the God of your upbringing. Uh, but that kind of deconstruction, whether we're talking about matters of faith or matters of um, politics and social, social issues, absolutely has to happen in order for us to be healthy people. And I want to add, too, because just as, after I said that, I realized I feel like people can feel an unnecessary amount of shame around what I said about not being willing to do the work. I think a lot of people don't know how. Yeah. And I think that is, that is by design as well. Yeah. One thing that I realize in deciding, I have to do something, I have to put my body into this, is that there is an entire field of study about how societies change and how ordinary people can work together to change them. Yeah. Books upon books upon books written about how social movements work and how they happen, how power is used and how people have power. And so one thing that, that I lament and that, I try, that I'm trying to put out there is that we have no idea, or we have really bad ideas about how power works in society, right? This idea that like power is a monolith, there's some evil person at the top of a tower who is holding the power because we think of power as like an object, like this Bible or this microphone that I have in my hand. And we talk about power as though we need to, as though because I am holding it, <laughs> 
No one else can have it, right? But in this entire field of study, which, got, which inspired Gandhi and Tolstoy and Thoreau and King and Sharp and, all of, and Popovich and all of these others in this genealogy of social change, is that we all, is that power is distributed throughout society. Power is being expressed through the institutions that we have in society, through the police and military, through the media, through organized religion, through the business sector. And the reason why power is being expressed through those places is because all of us are participating in those institutions. By themselves, a ruler cannot make sure that the buses are running on time, deliver the mail, manage ports, write laws. They, 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 they need all of us to perform those services. So therefore, we have the very power that we think someone is holding in their hands. When we say, we will not consent to you ruling in this way, there's nothing they can do. Yeah. And it's the most basic principle of, of organizing, of, of social change, of people power, all that kind of stuff. And, it doesn't occur to most people. So that is also a huge hindrance to fighting racial justice is that we don't realize that it is our participation in the way that things are that keeps things the way that they are. If we refuse, if we say we're not gonna do this anymore, we're gonna do something else, that system can't stand. Yeah, and, and I think it's important to recognize that the reason why those power structures are kept the way they are is because somebody is benefiting from them. And, and quite often, specifically when it comes down to, well, whether we're talking about faith or we're talking about politics, the power structures that are in place are often unchallenged and undeconstructed because of the level of catharsis that certain people are experiencing through those structures, meaning they're receiving comfort and certainty and security, a sense of mastery, a sense of supremacy. Whether, again, we're talking about faith or politics. And until we understand that that's the reason why we don't want to put in the work, because we are benefiting from that, even if we're not even consciously able to acknowledge that, until we acknowledge that, I don't think we can do the work that's necessary. Does that make sense? And I, I just think that that's kind of a fundamental point. The, the, the pathological, psychological nature of what we're talking about and the way that power is, is kept the way it is, because we don't. We, we don't want to let go of the psychological benefits from the power that we're receiving, you know? Um, but you're, I appreciate you saying that you don't want to shame people. <laughs> and, and I think that's important because, it, frankly, you know, I think all of us are here because we've had to undergo, we, there was a time in our life where we were not thinking this way. And we need to have patience and compassion for our brothers and sisters that are still, you know, behind us, so to speak. Um, and that's important. Anybody want to raise a question or, or a comment about any of that? We just said a lot. Yeah, sure. Let me give you the mic. Um, you had mentioned that the conversations we have with race over the last hundred years basically hasn't changed much. What kind of progress do you see, if any, that has been made in the last, let's say, 50 years? And secondly, what do you see the next 50 years? Here's the thing about progress, right, is that we think, we think that racism is like just this one entity, or racial progress is this one entity. Like myself, I'm gonna stand in for racial progress, and we think that we take one step forward in ending slavery, and we take two steps back into Jim Crow. And then we make one more step forward ending Jim Crow, and then we take two steps back with the war on drugs. There's a guy named Ibram Kendi, and he's like a leading voice in anti-racism work that contests that understanding of history. That it's not that we have this one entity of racial progress that takes one step forward and then two steps back. But instead, there are two forces always in conflict. Racist prog progress, which would be slavery, Jim Crow, war on drugs, all that kind of stuff, and anti-racist progress, which would be the end of slavery, the end of Jim Crow, war on drugs. These two forces are always, always in conflict, right? So even the nature of the way that we think about progress can be misleading. So when I look back, I would say this, this notion of racial progress is actually an obstacle to us 
because we think that, oh, or many people think, well, slavery ended, right? Therefore, what, right? Why are we still talking about it? Right. Well, did slavery end? Or in 1863, when the Emancipation Proclamation was, was or 1865, two years after the Emancipation Proclamation uh, was issued, were there still slaves around the country? Yes, there were. And when the 13th Amendment was, was written, did it end slavery or did it change the provisions on slavery? The latter. It never, it never abolished slavery in this country. It said, okay, slavery can only be used as a punishment for crime. And then what happened? You have these movies that are released and this, this rumor, this lie that spreads throughout the country that says that the, the cost for ending slavery would be crime. And so now people are looking at black people as criminals and what happens right after slavery? Prison boom. There are laws put on the books that say that black people have to have a job legally required to have a job, but they are also legally prohibited from owning land or property or starting businesses. So, you can't have a job, you don't have any land, and you can't start a business. What are you gonna do for work? Right. You're gonna end up working on the same plantation that you were on to begin with, but you're not a slave. So they say, only in name. Is that progress? That's why the people who were living at that time called it slavery by another name, right? Okay, Jim Crow ends, at least on the books. The, the, the Supreme Court passes a legislation that says schools have to desegregate. Do the schools desegregate? They do not. Years after the fact, the, the Supreme Court is still telling people schools in Pasadena you have, to, you have to integrate. What happens in Pasadena? There is a proliferation of Christian schools. These Christian schools are separate but equal schools by another name. These Christian schools are set up so that white parents can send their kids to schools without black people. Is that progress? Right after, you should look at the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and see how it has been gutted. And this is because anti-racist progress is always met with racist progress. So the day that the Emancipation Proclamation is issued, there are still people in America that believe that black people should be slaves or inferior to white people. Do you think they just gave up? Do you think they said, okay, well the Supreme Court said we can't be racist no more. <laughs> it, was, it was fun while that lasted. Right. No, they don't. That's not what they do. They fight back. That's what we saw with the election of Donald Trump. Barack Obama was elected and everybody said, now we live in a post-racist society. We never, talk, we never have to talk about racism again. Donald Trump's election was racist progress. And it always happens that way. So have we progressed? In some ways, we have won what is called the symbolic contest. The symbolic contest is about our common sense. Our common sense has changed a bit since the ever in America. <laughs> going to say the 50s and I was like wait people were saying nigger way before that so our, our common sense has changed in the sense that people don't walk around saying nigger 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 right we know we know that's not appropriate we know that it's not appropriate to just grab black people wherever they are and, and to lynch them right our common sense has changed our common sense says we're not supposed to be racist anymore. We're not supposed to be racial in that way. We're not, we know that. That's, our common sense has changed in that way. We have still yet to make progress on the institutional level. And this is a global thing. People forget that racism is a global, is a global reality. So look at South, South Africa and the way that people are talking about Nelson Mandela's legacy in that there are young people who look at Nelson Mandela as a sellout. This is the guy who led <laughs> who was such a huge figure in, in, the dis, in the dismantling of apartheid in South Africa. But Mandela is looked at as a sellout by some because even though there is no longer this political apartheid where black people are legally required to live in certain areas and coloreds are, you know, there's, a, there's integration, there is still huge economic inequality in South Africa just as it is in America. The racial wealth gap is just about the same as it was in 1964, today. 
neighborhoods that were separated by segregation through redlining still look the same as they did in the 60s. Northwest Pasadena, that, that area was redlined decades ago. It was designated to be a place where black people would basically be quarantined away from white people because white people didn't want to live amongst black people. And Northwest Pasadena is still, it is a food desert and it is still mostly black. So in the next 50 years, what do I see? I don't know. I mean, I am hopeful because I know that people can work together for progress. I know that we can win, but we have to fight. It does not happen by itself. And we have to understand that history. We have to understand that we can't just depend on elected officials or social justice messiahs like Dr. King or Malcolm X or whomever to do the work for us until we adopt an ethic of responsibility and say, you know, we will not live in an anti-racist world and we will know what's going on in our neighborhood and we will know what's happening in our schools and we fight together. The next 50 years will look like this. Will look like this. So you just listed some, some actual practical um, solutions. I know you're big on practical solutions to, uh, for racial justice. Could you go on a little bit um, and expand on that a little bit? What, what are solutions that work? What are methods that work? What are methods or solutions that don't work in your experience? Yeah. Well, everybody thinks that we need to have a national conversation about racism and that'll do something. I don't think it will. I don't think that we need, we've been talking about this. Why do people keep, why do people say like, we need to have a national conversation as though no words have ever been said about racism. Right. You know, there's, there's, or, or that there isn't a wealth of information you can access right now about all this. Yes, absolutely. You know, um, there, there is some conversing that needs to be had, but again, we're talking about, this is not just that, this is not just like one big misunderstanding, right? When I talk to people about racism, they want to say, oh, well, you know, um, people are afraid of the other and stuff like that. I'm like, no. People aren't, people aren't just afraid of black people. That's not why, they, I mean, people are afraid of black people. But it's not just because like, they were afraid why they did it. No, people knew what they were doing. People knew that people came to America and they said, we want this land. They weren't afraid of the natives. They said, we want this land. And we're going to do, we do what we have to do to displace them and take it. That was self-interest. That was not fear. We want free labor so that we can become a prosperous nation. We're going to enslave Africans. That's not fear. That's self-interest, you know? And so for us to be practical about how to do this, whew, it's, it's highly contextual. It has to do with looking. I wish I could draw this out for you. Sorry, I don't have a whiteboard for you. Okay, we're going we're gonna, to use this, this stand right here. I got the wireless. Oh, you did that with, uh, good job, all right. That is a lectern, I use that every week. It's very, it's very useful. An ethic of responsibility. Abraham Heschel says this like, few are guilty but all are responsible, Yeah. right? Few are guilty for the world that we live in but all of us are responsible for the society that we live in. And if all of us adopt an ethic of responsibility, we'll change the world. So this lectern is racism. We wanna make racism like this mysterious force. It's not, it's not mysterious, it's not invisible. It has a history, you can know exactly where it comes from, you can know exactly how it manifests itself, and you can know exactly how it works. Like this lectern, it's got a few legs here. It's got a little knob here that helps you to raise it and lower it. Okay, so the top of this lectern is systemic racism. All of the legs and the other stuff are the, the parts, right? And so what I would do, and I'm talking as a leading activist, but <laughs> because everyone's not gonna wanna do this work, but, we have, but somebody's gotta do this work so we can all join. Some people have to. Top is, is the actual issue. All of these legs are the things that are propping it up, right? So let's say that this leg is organized religion and this leg is the media and this leg is legislation, right? 
Is that helping you conceptualize it a bit? Right? We start thinking concretely about the problem. Then we say, okay, let's pick one. Which of these is the easiest pillar do we th that, that we think we can knock down? We can't answer that question this morning. Yeah. I, I, was, I was wondering if you could. Okay, good. <laughs> we'd, we'd have to think a little bit more about that. But let's just say that because we're in a church right now that we're going to go for organized religion, right? So we're going we're gonna to cut this, this leg in half, and then we're going to look inside of it and see what's in there. We're going to see um, theologies that are oppressive, right? That's one thing in that pillar that's helping it to stand, right? Um, what else are we going to see? Um, anybody else? Any, can you think of anything in organized religion? Just Right. Right. So the, the unknown, the ignorance around racism in religious. There you go. Construction as a history. Okay. Anybody else? Taking credit for racial progress we're not part of. Okay. Great. So we're going to look inside that pillar. And we're going to see all these things, right? Let's take one of those. Let's take, let's take oppressive theologies. Yeah. All right. Who who are the producers of these oppressive theologies? We're going to see churches, seminaries, uh, literature, professors, all this kind of stuff. Who are the consumers of these oppressive theologies? We're going to see church members, all the kind of stuff. And then we're going to ask the question, how do we pull people out of those oppressive theologies, right? And as we do that, what happens? That pillar starts to weaken, right? If we do that around all the pillars, what happens? This comes falling down. Awesome. <laughs> you answered the question. That was, that was awesome. And actually, it dovetails in my final question for you, and then we can open it up to the audience some more. Um, deconstructing oppressive theologies, you mentioned that. Um, you know, I. I think one could easily argue that, by and large, Christianity, Christian history, going all the way back to Constantine, the fourth century, has aligned itself with powers of empire, capital, Eurocentrism, white supremacy, um, patriarchy. Um, one could argue that even the American Christian experience has not really, by and large, been one on the side of the marginalized and the oppressed, but a, but a history that has empowered, a faith that has empowered white supremacy. With that, first of all, do you agree with that assessment of Christian history in the church? Yeah, for sure. All right. I thought you probably would. With that in mind, why are you a Christian? Why, in, in other words, well, I think that gets to the point. Yeah. You, sure. you could do social justice, you could do racial justice work outside of the Christian tradition. Why are you still a Christian? And, and if so, well, you're here this morning. And, <laughs> and why are you still working in this context? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I'm a Christian. I, I like that answer, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, I... Meaning, not that it's great that you're a Christian, but that you answered it kind of open-ended. Uh, I, I rightly pass as a Christian, but yeah, who knows? I mean, I think that I, I think I am. Yeah, yeah. You know? Uh, there are a lot of people that want to debate that. Um, I think that for me, so like I said, I wasn't sure that I believed in God at all when I started lugging that rock around Los Angeles. Um, and I was willing to let that go. I was willing to let go of belief at all. Uh, partly because it's one thing to have the old philosophical conversation of how can there be an all-knowing, all-powerful, benevolent being watching over everything that happens in the universe, and yet there be so much evil? It is another thing to then ask, how can there be an all-powerful, all-knowing, benevolent being watching over the universe that would not stop a bullet and save Philando Castile's life? and save his girlfriend and his four-year-old daughter from the kind of trauma that they experienced in watching him die. I couldn't, that was just untenable to me. Someone introduced me around that time 
to these post-Shoah theologians. Yeah. The, for those who are unfamiliar, uh, the Shoah is how some Jewish people referred to the Holocaust in World War II. And there were all of these conversations about where was God when these Jews were being burned in the death camps. There is a, it's a famous sermon, and the guy's, the guy's name is, for some reason, it's not coming to me, but it's called, uh, like, where is God when bad things happen or something like that. It's a, a rabbi. And he goes through that question, talking about Job, right, and saying, like, Job experienced all this calamity and all these people are sitting around trying to make sense of it, trying to make theological sense of it. And this rabbi, in the midst of it, talks about a few things, and they resonate with me. Um, one of them was that um, if there is a God, he can't be all those things. You know? And I started thinking about the way that the Hebrew writers write about God in the Old Testament especially. And they, they disagree, yeah. you know. Is God everywhere? Does God know everything? In what way does God know everything? Is God all powerful? And what, if, if so, in what, in what way is God powerful? All these kinds of things. And I just realized I don't have the answer to those questions, you know. I don't know. And it stopped mattering, honestly. That started being a philosophical question that I didn't have time to consider. I care about living, yeah. right? I care about saving black lives. I don't care how God might or might not know everything. Not a salient question. Would you ask Harriet Tubman if God is omniscient while she's trying to get people across a river and into Canada? Not a salient question, right? So I just stopped caring about a lot of the philosophical stuff. And I started just holding faith, faith very loosely. You know, the other thing that, that in this message that he mentioned was that when we ask God, why is there so much evil in the world, that God asks us the same question. And that resonated with me. Because as someone who went to Fuller thinking that I would become an Old Testament professor someday, um, I have, I've always been drawn to the first three chapters of Genesis. You know, since 2007, I've been reading the same three passages of scripture. <laughs> Genesis 1 through 3. <laughs> yeah. And what strikes me about, one thing that strikes me about that section of the Bible is that it seems that in an ancient Near Eastern context that what God does is create this sanctuary or this temple. And I know some people will disagree with that because that's contested amongst biblical scholars. But let me have my moment. <laughs> Hey, you have an MAT in ancient biblical languages, so it's, you're allowed to have a more, more of a moment. So, so God creates this sacred space and creates human beings to participate in the life of God. In Genesis 2, God creates a garden, and in the ancient Near East, oftentimes a, a garden for the gods is usually made adjacent to a temple. And there are people who say that Genesis 1 resembles the, the building of a temple. In the same way I say roses are red, violets are blue, you know I'm about to tell a bad poem. And you know that, you know, when you hear someone say, my fellow Americans, you know that they're about to, you know, that it's a presidential speech or something like right. that. To hear that, and then on the first day they created this, and then there was evening and morning, and on the second day they created this, evening and morning, it's like, oh, that's a, that's a song about a temple. That's, a, that's what that is. Mm. And usually these gardens are built adjacent to temples, and in Genesis 2, you have the Garden of Eden. Now, the garden of the gods is for the gods. That's their fruit. They're, the, the ancient people expected for gods to go in there and chill out and to eat and to have pleasure and all this kind of stuff. But in Genesis 2, God creates human beings and says, hey, have anything you want in the garden. They're, they're invited to participate in the life of God. And in, a part of the life of God is actually God's work. When God says, be fruitful and multiply and rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and all sort of kind of stuff, 
Isn't that stuff that you expect God to be doing? I mean, in my, in my upbringing, I was told that God rules the world. We even saying he put the whole, he's got the whole world in his hands, right? You know, because God is supposed to be doing all that stuff. But in Genesis 1, God creates these human beings and says, you manage the world. You care for the garden. Genesis 2, uh, that says that God created them to keep the garden, right? To work and to keep it. And in Hebrew, ha ha, biblical languages. Um, and in Hebrew, that word, that word is the same word for worship, right? It's the, same, it's the same work that priests are supposed to do in temples. So to manage the world is to worship God, right? So that's that ethic of responsibility again. And so that just, that just spoke to me. When, when I heard this in that sermon, that's why it resonated with me so much because I was like, I recognize how I think about the world in this sermon is that I am not going to sit around and ask why God allowed this to happen. That God created me as a co-regent in the world to worship God by managing the world. And part of managing the world is fighting injustice. Part of managing the world is cultivating beauty and when we're fighting injustice, we're actually, you know, we're protecting beauty, right? And joy and delight, which is the Hebrew word for Eden means delight. You know, we're guarding, guarding that thing. All that doesn't explain why, why I became a Christian, why I stayed a Christian, but that is part of why, that's part of what resonates with me out of the Christian tradition, right? It was very hard for me to reconcile these things because as I was making these connections out of necessity at the time, I had all these white pastors who were telling me things like, racism is not a priority to God. Yeah. That's like a direct quote. Yeah. That white, white pastors yeah. were my biggest opposers. And so that did a number on me. And then thinking about the history of white Christians doing that to black people, saying that your religious beliefs are inferior. You don't know how to interpret the scripture. You have no right or authority to do so for yourselves or to apply it to your own context. These same people, when they go to Ralph's, they ask Jesus Christ to help them find a parking space. <laughs> and they're going to tell me <laughs> that Jesus don't care about racism. I had some problems with that. I was like, oh, well, maybe Christianity really is for white people. I really I just, maybe it really is. Maybe this is all made up and it's just a way for them to get what they want in the world or to legitimate whatever project that they're on, you know, whether it is taking over America or parking very close to the door at Ralph's. God is on their side. Right. <laughs> and so I woke up one morning and I was supposed to be leading worship in Glendora. And if I was going to get there on time, I should have left 15 minutes ago. But I was like, listen, I have the feeling that God is white. And I am not going to church today if that is the case. Um, and in that moment, all of a sudden, all of these stories from the Bible came back to me in a much different way. I'd always, like, I never thought that justice and the gospel or justice and Christian faith were separate. Because when you're black and Christian, you grow up learning about black Christian pastors who were at the forefront of the very changes that we celebrate in America today. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a Baptist preacher. People forget that. You know, he did his work as a theologian, you know, and people forget that. So that was always a connection for me. But because I grew up in these white evangelical spaces, there still was this hesitance that white people had about putting justice at the center of their Christian faith, right? That saying the outworking of our belief in Jesus must be that we love our neighbors in the way that we vote, in the laws that we, uh, the laws that we pass or, how, or how, we, how we engage the, the public sphere or society. But that morning, the Exodus came back to me. Mm -hmm. The Exodus story came back to me. And for the first time, I really thought about how in the Exodus story, you have a clear example of systemic oppression. And it, it mirrors African the African-American story or the, the story of the African diaspora almost beat for beat. 
where you have someone who says, these people can't be trusted, erases their history, sets up a system to oppress them that endures for centuries, because remember, the first pharaoh dies. Moses confronts a whole nother pharaoh, not the one that constructed that system, you know? So you have all these Egyptians who are probably saying the same thing that white people say today. Well, I wasn't there. I didn't build this system, not all Egyptians. You know, the, the thing that actually spoke to me most, the thing that hit me first was the, the chapter where God sent the plague of darkness on Egypt. And it hit me for the first time that there are two Egyptians in the Exodus story that want Hebrews to be oppressed, the first Pharaoh and the next Pharaoh. Only two. But when the plague of darkness hits Egypt, every Egyptian sits in darkness. Every single one. What hit me was that no one could be innocent of that system of racism in that story or system of oppression in that story. Everyone is responsible. It hit me that salvation in that story meant moving actual bodies from one geographic space to another geographic place. Yeah, a very material idea of what salvation looks like. All this stuff comes running back to me while I'm supposed to be driving to church. <laughs> That's some drive. Yeah. I, I didn't start, I was still wasn't in the car yet. I was like, <laughs> this was like some, some, some communication telling me that, well, you know, maybe God isn't white. And um, I thought about this, this revolutionary picture of God, that God looks at this system of oppression and says, it's not even redeemable. It's not even reformable. I thought about um, the same with Jesus, uh, Jesus standing in opposition to Rome and these, these stories of during the Babylonian exile where these people are literally making fun of Nebuchadnezzar. And, you know, and I thought, and I realized for the first time that no, like this idea of liberation, this idea of justice is really central to this thing. In addition to that, the history, and this is really what brought me back because I still wasn't sold but the thing that really, I think, keeps me in the Christian tradition for now um, is that, is really, I, in studying the history of nonviolent struggle, I kept running into Jesus. And that was the thing, was that, yes, there are tons of Christian oppressors, but there are also pastors who walk the trail of tears with Native people. There are the Quaker, the Quaker tradition that people literally going door to door to advocate for the abolition of slavery. There's people like Dr. King and Fannie Lou Hamer and even Stokely Carmichael in the beginning, you know, that these are all Christian people of faith. It was reading uh, Tolstoy, who inspired Gandhi, and realizing that the book that inspired Gandhi from Tolstoy was The Kingdom of God is Within You. And Tolstoy is arguing that the solution to war is that everyone should just follow the Sermon on the Mount, yeah. right? I wasn't looking for a, a Christian, I wasn't looking to stay in the Christian faith. I was looking, and I have been looking, for ways that we can fight racism. And in doing so, I ran into this, I ran into someone who's talking about, well, the solution is that we should follow the Sermon on the Mount. Then I read Gandhi, and Gandhi says there are two things that inspired him, not the only two things, but two major works inspired him, that work from Tolstoy and the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' actual Sermon on the Mount. Gandhi named as one, of, as one of his influences. King is talking about how Howard Thurman, you know, a theologian, influenced him, and King was a, was a theologian himself. Um, even now, I'm in the Occupy stage, reading about Occupy Wall Street, and you know, the first chapter in this book called Hegemony How To, which is a sociological text from UC Berkeley. It is about Social movement theory in Occupy Wall Street is the, the first chapter the guy talks about how him reading the book of Exodus first helped him to understand and to frame economic inequality and fueled his activism. So I just, I'm in looking for how do we make a difference, I kept running into Jesus. Awesome. Thank you. All right. We have just a few minutes left. I know it's 1134. Um, yes, Jen. Two questions. Jen, you're first. Um, I'm glad that you just brought up nonviolent um, works because my question this whole time is, I'll say it first and then explain kind of, is how do you balance 
uh, hate and love because I do follow a lot of people on social media and stuff who um, this one woman actually did like a how to break down your white supremacy and how to see how it's affecting you every day, how you don't even know it. And I thought there's people out there that do that who want to educate through love and then there's people who are just so angry and they say, and they say no, I don't need to, I don't want to educate you. I just want to be angry and I want to fight and, and be violent about it. So I feel like there's two and then there's that Netflix documentary about the, the guy who is friends with the Ku Klux Klan leaders. I don't remember the name of it, but that is so loving on his part and he changes so many lives through love. So my question is, where, where's the balance? Because I, I feel like I can see both sides, so. Yeah, 